0: We are turning to John chapter 5 this morning, beginning at verse 30, and we'll be reading through the end of the chapter. We're picking up Jesus' words sort of in the middle of something he's been saying, and if you haven't been here uh, to hear the other part of this, I hope to give you a little review as we start the sermon this morning, so do not feel like you're sort of walking into something, you don't know really where you are, I hope to catch you up a little bit, Um, As I begin the sermon this morning. But we're starting at verse 30, and I commend to you to follow along and to give attention to this word as God's word, the word that he speaks to you this morning. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent." When you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, the one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of our Savior Jesus, as given to us in the Gospel of John. There's something very interesting that happens every Thursday in preparation for Sunday sermon. By Thursday afternoon, I must submit the title of my sermon just like anything that you're hoping to submit to the bulletin has to be in by Thursday noon. It's always sort of a putting off task for me. And the reason I put it off is this. Often by the time I've completed my sermon, I realize what I submitted for the title isn't as good as it could be. Well, that's true also this morning. The title that's here is not the title that I think best captures what I'm going to say. I'll refer to it later on in this morning's sermon But here's a title I really want you to hear. If you want to cross out what's in the bulletin and just put it in there, that's even fine with me. The title I would like you to contemplate is this, what Jesus says is an apologetic for the apathetic. It's an apologetic for the apathetic. Now, you might say your other sermon title is easier to understand. (laughs) It does have that going for it, so let me explain this one. An apologetic is simply giving a reason that is meant to convince. And in this morning's sermon, I'm going to give you three reasons. In fact, Jesus gives you three reasons why you should be convinced. That's the apologetic. The apathetic comes from the other part of this section, the latter part. Somebody who is apathetic says, ah, doesn't really matter that much. Should I really care? Should it motivate me? Should it change me? Should it compel me? And in these two parts of this morning's passage, the apologetic, here are the reasons you should believe you should be convinced. With the latter half, Sort of apathetic, I'm not sure why it should matter. We see between the two the very nature of Jesus Christ and what he is calling to you this morning. So let me explain those two parts of this morning's title, an apologetic for the apathetic, as we walk through these verses. And I want to start with the apologetic. When I say an apologetic for, it's not reasons to be apathetic. It's reasons addressed to the apathetic. In fact, there are three reasons that Jesus gives to us in the beginning part of this morning's passage. And in order to appreciate these three reasons, I have to introduce you again briefly to where we are in John chapter 5. We sort of have picked up what Jesus is saying in verse 30 after verse 29, obviously where Jesus has already been doing some explaining. And the reason he has needed to explain is because in the first part of John chapter 5, something amazing has taken place. In fact, I don't want you to miss that Jesus' explanation in these verses is meant as a commentary on the work he did in the early part of John 5. Here is the amazing thing he did. Jesus came to a pool... In a part of Jerusalem where there were many sick people, there happened to be a man there who was lame. In fact, he'd been lame since birth. He had been sitting there likely begging, asking people as they walked by, could you help me please? I need some help. There was no social safety network. He was going to live that day based on the kindness of other people. And Jesus, as he walks by, asks this man what may have seemed a very obvious question. I wonder if the man even thought it insulting. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed, man? Well, obviously the man wanted to be healed. And there was a legend about this pool that there was an angel who came down and he would stir the waters. And the first person to jump into the pool after the water was stirred would be healed. And so the man responds to Jesus, of course I want to be healed, but I have no one to help me get into the water. Here's the problem. The cure requires the very thing I'm not able to do. I'm lame. I can't get up. I can't go. And so I need someone else's help. And what was amazingly and wonderfully startling to this man is that Jesus says to him, Take up your bed and walk. You're healed. Now, just put yourself in the position of that man for just a moment. What goes through your mind if you're this man who's been lame forever? And someone comes to him and says, You're healed, take up your bed and walk. The first thought that goes through my mind is, Really? (laughs) So, just like that, it's that easy? But when the man responds to Jesus and picks up his bed and walks, amazing. Please be amazed. Be amazed at this more than the latest version of your Apple phone. Because this is truly amazing. A man who is lame now takes up his bed and walks. He was lame, now we can walk. This actually happens. And what is curious, and the reason why we have the rest of John chapter 5, is because this man was notorious for being lame, and as he's walking around Jerusalem, the Jews were there watching, and this happened to, to occur on the Sabbath. It happened in the day of worship. And the Jews had reasons for things they could and could not do on the Sabbath, and this violated their understanding of the Sabbath. And so they go to Jesus, and they ask him the question, on what authority, on what right do you have to tell this man to carry his bed on the Sabbath? Do you see how they missed the point? (laughs) This man has been healed amazingly. And the Jews are worried, well, what right do you have to carry your bed? And Jesus says in the verse that hangs over everything that follows, in John chapter 5, he says... My Father has been working from the beginning, and I am working as well. And John writes that the Jews knew that Jesus was claiming to be equal with the Father, and so they sought to kill Him. Everything that happens after this in John 5, Jesus' words, are meant to explain to the religious crowd That this Jesus has the rights, not just to tell this man to take up his bed and walk, but it's meant to explain to this religious crowd that Jesus is in fact God. That's what Jesus is saying. You're wondering about why he can carry his bed. Let's raise this question to the highest possible level, the very level you're concerned about am I God or not? And now Jesus in section that we're thinking about here this morning, verses 30 and following, gives three reasons why it is that the apathetic Jews, those who are going through the motions, should move beyond the motions to believing in the Messiah. Do you want to hear them? Here are the three reasons. Look at verses 33 through 35. It says, You sent to John... And he is born, what? Witness to the truth. He's speaking about himself. He is the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his lights. Now you'll notice I skipped a couple of verses, an explanation, because I can simply summarize them for you this way. Verses 30 through 33 tell us, that the three reasons that follow are all meant to highlight one important truth. Jesus is the Messiah based on the testimony of his Father. And the testimony of his Father is demonstrated in these three witnesses. The first of them is John the Baptist. Now what's interesting about each of these three witnesses is they basically capture what we have read already in the Gospel of John. For example in John chapter 1 you can turn back if you have your bibles there you'll notice that John the Baptist shows up very early in the book. If you look at verse 6 it says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as what? As a witness. "...about the light, that all might believe in him." He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. You go later on in this particular chapter, and you see the very first extended explanation that happens in John is about John the Baptist and his testimony about Jesus. If you look at verse 29 of chapter 1, it says, "...the next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "...behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." What is John the Baptist doing? Being a witness of the coming and the arrived Jesus Christ. You can flip your Bibles over to chapter 3. After those famous words about needing to be born again, chapter 3 verse 22 talks about Jesus and his disciples being in the same area as John the Baptist. And the question arose among John the Baptist's disciples what about this Jesus? How are we to understand him? And John the Baptist says, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's no competition between me and Jesus. My job is to point forward to Jesus. It's the very reason I came. And if that means that I must decrease, I will celebrate that decrease for the sake of his increase. John the Baptist is a witness to Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that Jesus says specifically in verse 34, he doesn't need that witness. What he means is that doesn't make him the Messiah. Rather, it's meant to convince the very people that Jesus is talking to. You saw John the Baptist. You were attracted to the light. You saw what he was doing. He came so that you might be saved. It wasn't that Jesus needed the testimony of any man, he says later, but instead we might need that testimony, we might need to be convinced that's why John the Baptist came. Now, if you think about the testimony of John the Baptist, you might say that his testimony is really helpful for those who say, I'm not really sure about this Jesus, I'm not really sure. And to explain to you what I mean by that, I want to invite you into our home. I hope you don't mind. Maybe some of you have been in our home when this has happened. And I'm delighted to tell you this happens. Maybe I am delighted in it more than my own children and my wife, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Imagine in my previous job, I'm sitting there in my office, and I look out of my office window, giant windows and it looked out over Sheffield Road, which is a major road through Dyer. And on Sheffield Road, there is a railroad track, and in order for the road to cross the railroad track, there's this big hump in the road. You've seen those, haven't you? And down Sheffield Road came a farmer holding a, 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 um, um, carrying, pulling a pot Valley trailer full of hogs for market. And I could see him pause before he came to this rise in the road, almost contemplating, am I going to make it? So he tries, and as he is crossing that hump in the road, the pop belly of his semi-truck gets caught at the top of this rise, and it's high-pointed. Can you see that in your mind? And then as I'm watching out my window, I see the man walk to the back of his truck and think, now what do I do? And he wonders maybe if he shifts the hogs around to the front, maybe the trailer will tip and he can drive away. So I see him open the door and climb in. But little did he know the hogs were upset with what was happening. He opens the door and down Sheffield Road runs a whole pot belly load of hogs. Can you see that in your mind? Now here's the question. True or false? Did that really happen? We play this game at home, me telling some fantastic story and then asking my children, did it happen or not? And even after we go around and every one of them guess, true or false, true or false, inevitably after I tell them whether it's true or false, one of them will turn to my wife who is one of the most honest, straightforward people of integrity that I know And one of them will turn to my wife and say, Mom, is that really true? That's John the Baptist. These Jews needed a witness to confirm that what God was saying about Jesus was true. And that was the role of John the Baptist to confirm, to say with its own eyes, yes, it's true, you can believe. And I just want to ask you this morning, as those who are listening to this unfolding conversation between Jesus and the Jews, is that what your heart also longs for? You're reading in the Bible here these stories about Jesus And they may sound to you not to be disrespectful at all to what happens in John 5, but they sound like a story about Sheffield Avenue. How is it possible that this man who was lame his entire life now can walk? You're like, did that really happen? You need a witness. You need someone like John the Baptist to say, these things do occur. This is the Messiah. This is the one you should believe in. And Jesus is saying, if that's what you need, I've given you that one in John the Baptist. He's right here. He is testifying to what he is seeing. In fact, in the Bible, there's a whole series of these witnesses of this sort. Fast forward in the Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. You know that chapter? It's the great resurrection chapter. And in that resurrection chapter, talking about the validity of the resurrection, Jesus actually rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul writes, and there are many witnesses of this. You can ask those who saw Jesus rise from the dead. This is not just a story we tell ourselves because we'd like for it to be true. No, he says, you all can go and ask those who actually saw Jesus alive. This is true. This is valid. This is not a religious truth only, as Kant would be fond of saying. Some kind of truth that's not really rooted in reality. We just want it to be. It's like a different category of truth. No, this is actual truth. That's a point that John the Baptist, the point that John the Baptist is making. That's his role. That's his place. And Jesus wants you to look to him and hear the question, do you need a witness? Do you need, do you need to be convinced? If you do, here's John the Baptist. Listen to him. But then there's a second witness as well, and this comes in verse 36 verse 36 says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Do you see how we're working to a crescendo? Okay, John the Baptist, you need a witness. You've got John the Baptist. You've got all those who can testify to the historical validity of this man, Jesus. But Jesus says there's a greater witness even than that. What is it? For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. It's not just that John the Baptist and other witnesses testify about Jesus. Now Jesus says, but they're also the works that I do. The very things that I am doing testify that I am the Son of God. If you would read that 36, in the original, the emphasis at the very beginning of that verse is on the word I! I! I have evidence, I have a witness, and the witness is the works that my Father has given me to do. It's not hard to figure out what those works are. You can just go back to the beginning part of this chapter. There's Jesus healing this man. I've emphasized to you the drama of the story. It's amazing. This happens over and over in the Gospels. Why did Jesus come performing miracles? It was to testify to those who saw and heard that Jesus was no ordinary man. How many miracles have you done? Seems like such a dumb question, doesn't it? Well, obviously, the answer is no. As much as you might think, as I thought when when I was young, my dad is the biggest, strongest, toughest guy who's ever lived. He's never performed a miracle. That's not human. We're limited. But Jesus is saying about himself, I'm not merely human. I am the one sent from God because I can perform the works my Father has given me to do, including that man who is lame can now walk. The blind see. Those who are deaf can hear. Even the dead are raised. And over and over in the Gospels, the emphasis is placed on the historical reality of Jesus' work to testify to the Jews and to us, this Jesus is in fact the Messiah. There have always been people, and maybe this is the battle you're facing in your own heart right now, you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure those miracles really happened. How do we know? So let me ask you the very obvious question. Why didn't the Jews in chapter 5 object... To this claim that Jesus had performed this miracle. You would think the most obvious way to discredit Jesus in chapter 5, who's claiming to be the Messiah, to be equal with the Father, would be to say to Jesus, you claim to have healed this man, he's not healed. So there. But that's not what they do. The reason they don't do that is because the man's actually walking around, <laughs> Something actually happened. The same thing happens when sight is given, when the deaf hear, when the dead are raised. We don't read people in the Gospels watching this happen, think, think, think to themselves and say to Jesus, well, that didn't happen. No, they seek to discredit the implication of what they see. They do not doubt that it actually occurred. So let me ask you, the witness of the works of Jesus Christ, the very things His Father gave, them, gave Him to do, you find them convincing. What do these miracles say about Jesus? How do you explain them in your own mind? Are you just going to dismiss them? I don't mean to insult you, but the Jews did better than that. They actually acknowledged it was truth. They just didn't know what to do with it. Don't make the inferior error. At least acknowledge with me this happened. And then wrestle with the question what does that mean about Jesus? But now, if I'm thinking along with some of us, you're wondering well, very nice, Pastor, but John the Baptist and these miracles are recorded in the scriptures. So maybe they're not telling the truth. Have you never read a book that was not true? Maybe this book is not true. That's the third witness that is raised here in Jesus' words. In verses 37, 38, and 39, Jesus goes on to say, not only do you have the testimony of John the Baptist and other witnesses, you have the miracles themselves, but now you have the Father speaking as the greatest of all witnesses. Look at verse 37. It says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And then this very probing verse, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is saying something very simple. I prayed about it earlier. That is, the entire Scriptures are meant to point us to Jesus Christ. They're not first about morality. They're not just about stories. They're not just about good things to know. The Scriptures are meant in their entirety to point us to the saving work of Jesus Christ. It is in that light that we hear the commandments of God. The morality flows from the Messiah. It is in that light that we understand stories like the fall of Jericho and the captivity of the Israelites taken into slavery and the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. They all find their common purpose in Jesus Christ. And now Jesus is saying to these Jews... You're hoping to find something when you read this book, and you're searching all over the place, but you're never going to find what you're looking for apart from me. And a couple of chapters later, Jesus will say it a little differently, but it's the same point. He'll say in John chapter 6, he is the bread of life. We need to eat that bread. He is the sustenance we need to live. You don't have Jesus, you can't have life. This is the witness necessary For us to believe that the Bible is more than simply a nice book, you may even say it's a historical book. You may even go so far as to say it does not contain errors. But if you do not see in the Scriptures the voice of Jesus Christ calling you to follow Him, if you are not convinced that the Bible is one giant apologetic for Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, friend, it is my duty this morning to tell you you have missed the point. Because Jesus says, if you miss me, you're going to manipulate the Scriptures so that they turn into a big hammer to avoid the very heart of our God. And that's where I want to go next, in verses 40 through 47. There are three witnesses, that is the apologetic, and then in verses 40 through 47, we have these addressed to the apathetic again i just want to stress to you what i mean by apathetic this would be the person who listens who maybe even listens very nicely you're paying attention i can see your eyes focused you've heard this many times you think to yourself okay another one of those sermons maybe you've even you've even read john 5 many times this is a safe comfortable routine for you show up go through the motions And yet there's never been a time where the witnesses that we read about in the earlier part of John 5, this section, where those witnesses have been convincing to you. How do I I explain convincing? Let let me put it this way. By convincing, I mean you give yourself over entirely to Jesus. Instead of holding back and saying, but I'll figure out exactly how much of this I'm going to buy into... I may go through the motions. Everybody needs to do the motions. It's socially acceptable. I'm going to give myself entirely over to Jesus. That is the Rubicon that you cross into genuine faith. Let me explain what Jesus means then by the apathetic. The key is there in verse 40 that I read. You are not willing to come to me in order to have life. You might ask yourself the question with all of these witnesses that Jesus has been careful to point the Jews to, to us to, why don't we come to Jesus? Why don't we just do that? And the answer to that question is is a little secret that I think it's important to bring out into the open. And the little secret is that the problem is not primarily a matter of the mind, The problem is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of evidence. It's a matter of belief. To say it again rather strongly, the problem is one of your heart. I'm fairly sure that you may believe there are enough witnesses. Honestly, your heart knows that's true. But you also know that if you listen to these witnesses, if Jesus is who he claims to be, and you believe he is the one that God has sent into the world, and you will give yourself over to him, it will transform your heart and your life, and you do not want that to happen. Because instead of transform, you think to yourself, it will be captured by someone else. For many of us, that scares us. I don't like that idea. That sounds wrong. Why? You want control. (laughs) Can I laugh about that? We all want control, don't we? And when you give your life to Jesus, you give it up. Let me say it differently. You love yourself a lot. And you are convinced that no one is going to love and care for you like you. And therefore, I must keep control over my belief And what I take to be real and true in order to pursue the good life, the kind of life I deserve. I need to stay in control. You know, one of my favorite questions to ask people is what does the good life look like for you? Is it 10 acres somewhere, nice house, nice family, all put together? Is it 50 acres a little bit north where you can ride around on a dirt bike, sit in a stand, shoot deer? Is it a vacation home in Florida? I have to say, going on vacation. That sounds very appealing to me right now. What does that good life look like? Because whatever you think it looks like, whatever you set your heart upon, you're going to pursue that with everything that is in you. You may even say to yourself, others cannot know what I'm pursuing. I'm fooling everyone else. You're probably wrong about that, but you're most certainly wrong before the face of God himself. This is what Jesus says to the Jews and He says to you this morning. The alternatives to Jesus Christ are empty. They're like a mist. They disappear. Anything short of Jesus and His kingdom will be one giant perpetual disappointment to you. Maybe you will continue to pursue those things and then come to a point point you'll think, well, I guess it's not quite that. I need to kind of bend my ambition some. And you'll pursue that for a while. I can promise you, no matter how much you bend that ambition, it always ends in the same place, disappointment, frustration. Until you find your hope in Jesus Christ and life within His kingdom, You will be one disappointment after another. In fact, Jesus emphasizes that in verse 43. He says, You are willing to receive the testimony of someone else, but you won't receive mine. What is he saying to the Jews? He is saying, You're willing to believe your own heart, your own sense of what's right. You're willing to believe that enough power, enough ambition, enough position, enough, enough respect, enough comfort, whatever it else, enough of that will bring you the life that you want and you deserve. And here's the truth it's a lie. It will not deliver. In fact, if I can be honest with you, they're horrible lies. Because as much as we might want to believe them, they not only end in disappointment, they end up in captivity. I'm going to end this sermon by taking you back to the beginning of John chapter 5. I want to play with you a little game of what if. What if the Jews were right about this man who was lame? What if they were right about what should have happened at the beginning of John chapter 5? Remember, what did they want? They wanted this man not to be carrying his bed on the Sabbath. Even further, they did not want this man to be healed. They didn't want it... He was far more important to them to have control, to make sure that their good life was preserved, that they would want this man to remain lying by this pool, lame and poor, unhealed. And Jesus came and brought him liberty. And what I'm saying to you this morning is just as certain The three witnesses that Jesus points to, the testimony of others, the works that Jesus does, and the fullness of the Scriptures are meant to bring you life. In a world, my friend, that is full of darkness and death. And that is the best I can do for you this morning. And give you reasons and apologetic for abandoning anything short of Jesus. Would you join me in praying? Father, we want to have that life and that freedom. And I'm thankful not only for the words of Jesus in John chapter 5, I'm also thankful for the tone that he uses. Sometimes we're a little wary of the tone of Jesus, where he's direct, where he confronts, where he is honest. Because often we misuse that tone, especially in the church. We start to command people around by force of personality, by the matter of our position, because we want to dominate and control. But that's not what Jesus does. Lord, I pray that you would spare us From abusing what Jesus not only says, but the tone with which he says it. That our effort in being honest and straightforward, and even sometimes being very, very direct, would not be in service of our own power and control. It would be in the service of pointing people to the grace and the comfort that comes in Jesus Christ. There is no mercy like the mercy of our Savior. There's no freedom like the freedom he gives. And Lord, release us, even in the edges of our heart, from believing the lies that that say we will find that somewhere else and free us to live in the glorious lordship of Jesus and his kingdom. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.